My name's Paul Gilroy. I'm the director of the Sarah Parker Riemann Centre for the Study of Racism and Racialization at University College London. My guest today is Nikhil Pal Singh, who is Professor of Social and Cultural Analysis and History at NYU at New York University. And Nikhil is founding director, faculty director of the NYU Prison Education Program, but is perhaps better known as a historian of race and empire and culture in the United States, particularly in the 20th century. And Nikhil's the author of several books, Black is a Country, Race and the Unfinished Struggle for Democracy, and then most recently, Race and America's Long War, which came out from University of California Press in 2017. Now, I thought we could start, if that's all right, Nikhil, with your interest, your long-standing and provocative interest in the unfinished struggle for democracy in the United States. And I found myself, I'm sure, like many people, looking back at Black Reconstruction and thinking about that argument of Du Bois, which has been so important for so many of us doing this work. And looking at the events of the last month or so, how do you interpret that? And do you think that there are still things in that frame that sort of centering the argument on democracy is not as popular a choice these days? So I'm curious to know whether you still think that that's important and whether you still think that's something that we should be committed to. Well, first, let me say, Paul, thank you so much for having me in conversation with you and being a part of the sort of beginnings of this new center, which is a very exciting initiative to have on the way. So to begin with the concept of democracy, I mean, for sure, it's fallen on hard times. And it's a term that's so traduced in the kind of usage in the United States, particularly as it became over the last you know 20 years captive to the kind of neoconservative, neo-imperial project of democracy promotion. And, you know, I remember, and I think it was one of the spurs to writing Race in America's Long War, Condoleezza Rice going down to New Orleans after Katrina and making the argument that the civil rights movement, the African-American struggle for full citizenship and for kind of non-racial democracy in the United States, had in a sense licensed the United States, had kind of cleansed the United States in a way that allowed this country to become the agent of democracy promotion in the world. So I think when I heard that in 2005, which was just around when Black is a Country came out, you know, I felt aghast because it seemed to me the exact inversion of the argument that I had been making in that book, which was to the contrary, it had been the truncated nature of American democracy as a racial democracy, as a racist democracy, as a democracy built on exclusion that in some sense had limited all of our aspirations, that there's a radical potential within the idea of democracy a democracy that in some ways we might see as consistent with socialism, a democracy that is about bringing to heal the kind of forces of private accumulation, not just allowing for wider political participation. And it had always seemed to me in the history of the United States, going back to the failure of Reconstruction or the foreclosure of Reconstruction at the end of the Civil War, that American racism and white supremacy in particular had been sort of the leading edge of democracy limitation for the entire country. And so we had a first reconstruction, which was foreclosed. And then we had a second reconstruction, which was also foreclosed in the 1960s, the moment when the United States, we might say, for the first time in its history, became a liberal democracy, mm -hmm. only just over 50 years ago. 
And now we think perhaps that we are on the brink of something that we might call a third reconstruction. And I think that's a, a potentially very compelling language and framework to think about what we're trying to achieve. But we also have to recognize some of the ways in which the situation has changed. The forces of order, if you will, the forces that in some ways have been very comfortable with the truncated nature of American democracy, with a democracy in name that is kind of the annex to kind of capital accumulation on a very rapacious scale, is also quite comfortable with paying lip service to Black Lives Matter, you know, and is quite comfortable with the idea that what we really need to do is to kind of diversify the kind of ruling elite, even as we maintain a kind of system of quite brutal market dependency. So to really move to the next moment in our kind of democratic struggle, I think we have to reckon with that, reckon with the ways in which to circle back to Condoleezza Rice. Some of the earlier struggles have now been kind of conscripted and their languages have been taken over by the ruling order. So it's a tricky situation, of course, because we don't just have that kind of conscription, but we have the resurgence on the right of a more virulent sort of racial nationalism. And we're kind of caught on both sides and trying to find our way through to a new settlement that would actually lead us somewhere better. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I call it McKinsey multiculturalism. I suppose the project of decolonizing the 1%, you know, is not a very appealing prospect for me, but you put your finger on it there because I think the question of emergent forms of authoritarian, I mean, I would say neo-fascist, but I know not everybody wants to sort of look at it from that angle. I think the resurgence of new forms of popular authoritarian politics, popular ultranationalist politics, the emergence of, I mean, I don't want to say alt-right because I feel alt-right is not a critical term. It's their term for what they do. It's not our term for what they do. And we have to be really, really careful about terminology here as we Mm -hmm. move into this new configuration that you've mentioned. So I suppose I'm curious to know, given what you said a moment ago, what the balance of forces looks like. Because I don't know how isolated the alt-right forces are. I don't know how parochial the old white nationalist forces are. I know that they fall out periodically around, you know, gender questions or that they don't always look at the world from the same angle. But there are many ways in which racism itself supplies them with energy, supplies them with a kind of centripetal force that enables them to hold their projects together. So I'm curious to how you will really assess this balance of forces in the moment that we're in. And may all, of course, change over the next few days. We'll be very careful to say that we were having this conversation on the 16th of June. Things are moving very, very fast. It's a very volatile, very complex situation, very perilous situation. But I mean, the mainstreaming of the Black Lives Matter idea, the kind of corporate multiculturalism, the voice of corporate multiculturalism, I mean, I don't want to say this lightly, but the mainstreaming of all of that actually is one factor, I feel, that's pushing certain ambivalently placed forces almost towards the right, because they're recoiling from a mainstream, which is branding itself as the repository of multicultural possibility. And uh-huh. and that's a repellent prospect, actually. Uh-huh. Yes, yes. You put it so well, and I really wrestle with this idea. I think you've actually honed in on the crucial question for us, which is how do we assess the balance of forces? And I think any answer, as you've already noted, is going to be highly provisional. But I I would just 
highlight the question because I think this is the conversation we should be having. I mean, we've lurched in this country since Trump was elected between a kind of idea of, of sort of fascism descending, you know, and I think we could bring the F word back into the conversation. I'm not averse to it. And you've qualified it by calling it neo-fascism. And I think I always go back to, you know, Langston Hughes, who talked about our native fascisms. So in the United States, we've had a version of something on the far right for quite a long time, a far right politics that has been invested in, you know, kind of racialized necropolitics, again, as the sort of leading edge of its political project, but a political project that has been, again, fundamentally about a version of capital accumulation, of private property holding, and of the sequestration and hoarding of wealth. So we could call it racial capitalism. You know, we could call it a lot of different things. And I think we're trying out different terms to try to name the system, you know, as they said on the new left. And it's not easy because we do have on the other side, as you pointed out, this almost, you know, lockstep consensus. I mean, when the protest started, Every single corporation came out with it. Every single big multinational came out with its Black Lives Matter statement. I mean, you have Amazon, who's really now the biggest corporation in the world by dollar value, and running masses of quote-unquote essential workers through the mill of kind of logistics work in the most dangerous times for those workers and with, you know, very, very little concern for their lives and their livelihoods. You know, and of course, in New York City, where I see those workers all the time, the vast majority of them are black and brown, African-American and Latino. Most of them live in the boroughs of Bronx or Queens, where they have to take the subway to get to work. These are the boroughs where we have the highest rates of COVID-19 infection and mortality. So in terms of Black Lives Mattering to Amazon, I mean, it's, it's just not true at that level, right? And so we have this kind of disconnection. And I think you're absolutely right that and this is a real dilemma on the left right now, because you referred earlier to kind of the nationalist currents on the left. And I think those kind of merge here with a hostility to corporate multiculturalism that then leads people to an argument that basically says, well, if we talk about racial disparity in any way, we are in some ways kind of selling out to the neoliberals, right? And that argument's gained a certain amount of traction here. And in a sense, it has its own sort of built-in amnesia, first of all. It forgets that there's a kind of multi-century history of racial terror that's behind us and that's kind of underpinning all this. But it also ignores the possibility, I think, and this gets to the balance of forces, that in this moment, we actually have an opportunity to say that, I think as Ruthie Gilmore said in her conversations with you earlier, which was wonderful, that when Black Lives Matter, everyone lives better, I think was how she put it, mm -hmm. but also that what's being recognized in the streets of the United States right now is that a long history of racial sacrifice of racist sacrifice, has been central to building a malevolent state and economy for all of us, mm. right? I mean, the American police and carceral system now locks up millions of people, millions of white people, mm. just as the slave-holding South disenfranchised mm. millions of white people, even as they held millions of slaves. So when we talk about something like white supremacy, 
in the language of white privilege, I think we miss that important element because the language of white privilege suggests, well, what we have to do is to sort of look at all white people and say, you have this privileges that I don't have. And so we need to take that away from you rather than recognizing that the racist ordering of our system has actually meant a kind of paucity of life for all of us. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's an anecdote I use in Race in America's Long War, a historical anecdote that I got from Edmund Morgan's amazing work, American Slavery, American Freedom, where he talks about how some of the earliest laws that kind of codify race in Virginia in the late 17th century are laws that make distinctions around how servants and slaves can be punished. And they're both sets of workers can be whipped, but one can be whipped without their clothes, i.e. slaves, and the others have to retain their clothing when they're whipped, right? So this is, this is white privilege in that moment, right? White privilege is you get to be beaten with your clothes on rather than being stripped naked. And I think if we could start to attain a kind of understanding within our kind of anti-racist politics that recognize that the point is not to sort of constantly do this comparative gesture where we parse out who has privilege and who doesn't have privilege in order to kind of level down, that we kind of recognize that the problem that we face is the way in which a racialized order has been used to, in some ways, convince all of us that we can't actually have the kind of broad solidarities that are required to produce the sort of egalitarian ordering of wealth and political participation and pleasure and enjoyment and leisure and everything that I think most people, if they were really given the chance to think about it, would want. So, I mean, that's maybe not a precise enough answer or a precise enough way of getting at the question about the balance of forces. I think the balance of forces in the street actually favor us but the balance of forces in terms of the control of wealth and resources and the balance of forces within the functioning institutions we have do not favor us, right? And I think that's partly what's pushed people back into the streets. You know, I think people keep getting pushed into the streets again and again all over the world. Joshua Clover calls it the age of riots. You know, and the sort of form of struggles that we now have are these forms of struggles that are about the eruptions into the space of circulation due to the fact that people are not actually empowered in workplaces. In fact, even if they have decent jobs, and yet the struggles in the streets as of yet have not yielded a kind of responsiveness or maybe they're organized in a way that seems to ask for something from those who are in positions of power, but that doesn't actually change the ordering of power. So, you know, one of the things we've seen in the United States over the last four or five years is, you know, an effort to really advance a kind of left electoral project. Mm -hmm. And you've obviously seen that in Britain as well. So Sanders and Corbyn would have been the standard bearers of that. But in the U.S., at least, it pushes further down into congressional races and city council races and races for local assemblies. And mm. I think there are hopeful signs there of people really running on a kind of strong position that is both about the redistribution of wealth, universal health care, education, all the things that we would want as people on the left, people who consider themselves socialist in some sense, right? And we can talk about what that means, but that also who recognize that we have lived in a society which has 
brutally segmented us along race and gender lines, and that these have to be addressed in concert, that we need a politics that can articulate these questions, but we've needed that politics for a long, long time. We still haven't really found our way to it. Right. And of course, I mean, obviously for us, the Labour Party is the fetter that we need, but we also can't free ourselves from. Um, it's no point going over my view of the Corbyn period. I mean, I always felt that he was somebody who was not really equipped to play the hand that history had dealt him. Mm -hmm. and he was someone whose perspective on the country, despite being somebody who was committed to peace and committed to anti-racist goals in a way that commanded a measure of acknowledgement, was also someone who was essentially an English nationalist of the kind of Tony Benn kind. Mm -hmm. And that my own life as an academic and as a writer really began with trying to interrogate that formation for its unthinking attachment to certain sort of nationalist motifs in the way that it articulated its socialist commitments. I'm sort of curious about two things in response to what you say. Firstly, about the language of class and whether there is some sense in which the language of class is a vehicle that you can reimagine in the context that you described. I always find that hard to see in the States because the kind of racial nomos, the organization of power and space on the ground is still so utterly segregated that it almost seems to set a kind of horizon against which those as it were, prefigurative appeal to kind of class-based experiences and politics was going to founder on that. And the other thing it makes me think of is really questions of technology and communication, because when you were speaking earlier on, I was thinking about Father Coughlin and the radio priest and this sort of idea of a kind of American fascism in the 1930s that was all very much a kind of radio-based phenomenon. I mean, there are other aspects of it that aren't really relevant here. And now I'm thinking about internet communications and the, you know, development of psychopolitics or psychographic political operations that are part and parcel of the military and cultural diplomacy of both our countries in the world, but which are now in a much more refined form of being brought to bear on the life of our polities at the moment in ways that I think people on the left have found very hard to track, you know. Mm -hmm. The forces of the right seem much better at gaming the algorithms of Facebook and Twitter, but there's a lot more going on beneath the gaming of those algorithms in terms of how one communicates with those that one can mobilize. And I'm sort of wondering, looking at the last three weeks in particular, how much that's been breaking down. It's been very striking here that the young people, very often very young people who are in the street are using TikTok and other tools that were not really designed for the purposes that they put them to. So I'm interested in political communication and different forms of political communication that can help to make sense of this mobilization. That's the first thing. And the second thing really is whether you think that there's a kind of limit placed on the way that a kind of resurgent class politics can express itself, given how tightly managed on the ground it really is by the not just the residues of a segregated governance, but by the active power of that segregated governance in so many well, everywhere, actually. I mean, there are other parts of the big cities where that's broken down to some extent, you know, and they're often very clearly identifiable as the engines of the radical culture of the moment that we're in. You know, I mean, you mentioned Queens earlier on, Brooklyn, I mean, obviously, Oakland, Bay Area, there are places dotted all over the country where we can see those things adding up to something on the ground. You know, does that have a limit? And what forms of political communication have to, and contagion have to come with that? Because it's incredible I know we were criticising earlier on how the corporate interests have been completely opportunistic in this, but I'm wondering about the culture of celebrity, because one of the things that's happened, mm. as it were, on our team 
is that we've had a lot of celebrity capital, capital of celebrity disposed in the direction that we would wish. Is there a slightly different argument to be made about the celebrity factor rather than the corporate factor? I know they mesh, but can we separate them? No, I think they definitely do mesh. And I've seen a lot of cringeworthy celebrity, you know, renunciations of privilege and embracing responsibility and, you know, these kinds of things. It has a kind of theological aspect to mm -hmm. it in some ways, right? I mean, you've asked so many, you've posed so many questions in that very kind of complicated framing that you gave. And I feel like I want to sort of answer some of them by circling back to maybe the themes that are already running through this conversation, which is how do we assess the balance of forces? How do we take the measure of the relationship between what we might call, on the one hand, a progressive neoliberal orientation that will embrace kind of multicultural symbolics while pursuing ruthlessly its market interests, its profit motive? And on the other hand, a resurgence on the right, which is very, very comfortable, again, speaking a quite virulent language of exclusionary nationalism that is inwardly focused. Because in the United States, I think that one of the complicating features, and obviously this relates to Britain, but perhaps in a different moment, is that we still have the empire. You know, we still have military bases in 800 countries. We still spend more on so-called defense than the rest of the world combined, practically, and are the biggest arms trader, and have a massive military apparatus, which also employs millions of people. And has in some ways long been a bulwark of racial integration. I mean, 40% of the army, I think, is African-American. Right. I mean, I could be wrong about that, and we could check it later. But the army, specifically, as a branch mm -hmm. of the military. And interestingly, of course, the military has really put some brakes on Trump at different mm -hmm. moments in the current when Trump wanted to call out the military and tried to enlist the military in the kind of vision of violent suppression of what's happening, the military kind of put up a big hand to stop him. And I think it's interesting that the U.S. military, I think, is quite cognizant of the idea that it needs to manage internal diversity in the United States much differently than, say, the far right would want us to manage inwardly focused difference. And obviously, this is a very heterogeneous country and has been for a long time. So the corporate neoliberal and military interests, I think, are all aligned towards an effort to tamp this down with a kind of soft reform and kind of return to the business of running the empire. You know, in a sense, this was what Obama represented. Mm -hmm. You know, Obama was, he ran his election in these kind of soft populist tones. He did this wonderful rhetorical move of making himself the kind of inheritor of all the progressive trajectories of American democracy, the struggles of workers, the struggles of women, the struggles of African-Americans. And, you know, added a few reformist pieces to our social policy picture of a kind of very, very moderate improvements in healthcare and a desire to extend that to the country, but not a nationalized healthcare, even close to that. And then to better prosecute the kind of global security project. So I think that's the status quo that we are now primed to return to with a figure like Biden. You know, and I think the real concern on parts of the left is that this all rebounds to that project. It all kind of gets channeled back into a kind of a shoring up of this progressive neoliberal sort of imperial management that has a kind of softer accents domestically 
a little bit of carceral reform, a little bit of police reform, some return to kind of make sure that we have a diversification in the right places. And, you know, the internal contradictions then get kind of tamped down again. And maybe Biden won't produce the same kind of right-wing furor that Obama produced, hard to say. The right, on the other hand, I think is at a bit of a crossroads in the United States. So it could very well double down on Trump's kind of move, which is to really try to stoke a kind of racial animus wherever it can find it, you know, and it's always been this kind of mobile project, you know, it's, is it urban crime associated with African Americans? Is it the illegal border crossers and people who are working without papers? And also perhaps committing crimes, because crime is always sort of saturated in this. Is it the Chinese who have stolen our birthright? You know, is it the terrorist, the brown skin, perhaps somewhat hard to locate on a map, but somewhere in the Middle East, who, you know, has infiltrated in some way our otherwise secure and pastoral land? I mean, all of these modes of racialization and kind of the ways they get articulated to kind of a violent state initiative have been very much a part of the American project for the last 20 years. And I think the right has run with them in different directions. I mean, George Bush ran with the war on terror. Trump ran with the war at the border. Before Trump and Bush, you know, the Reagan Bush ran with the war on crime. You know, and I think they're at a bit of a crossroads now in terms of where they go next. Mm -hmm. Do they try to continue in this vein or do they return in some ways to something that's more like maybe a language of class? And I think if you look at someone like Steve Bannon, you know, who's obviously made his appearances on your shores, oh, yeah. you know, sometimes he says things that are quite interesting. And one of the things that I think he said early on was he said, you know, we're going to bring a lot of African-Americans and Latinos into this project. Yes, he did. Because we are going to restore the place of the American worker and, and the manufacturing worker. Yeah. And in order for the Republican Party to move in that direction, which is in some ways really a kind of civic racial nationalism, mm -hmm. right, of the kind that we're familiar with, they really will have to, I think, make a choice to channel that kind of belligerence outward again and to think about in some ways what it would mean to almost return to the project that George W. Bush sort of had in mind for the GOP. And George W. Bush wanted a big tent GOP. He wanted to be a little bit softer on immigration. He had a very diverse cabinet, if you remember. I mean, the prosecution of the global war on terror mm -hmm. had every color under the mm -hmm. sun running mm -hmm. that thing. Asians, Latinos, yep. African-Americans, all in positions of considerable authority. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's possible that we could really see that again as well. I think Trump might end up being a bit of an aberration. I mean, others have said this. I mean, I, I hesitate to say this because I think when Trump came along, we were like, oh, oh my gosh, you know, it's like, we didn't know this could happen again. And this is going to go in a very, very dark direction. But I think in the United States, that that progressive language of inclusion has a real hold and that the Republican Party is going to struggle now to compete with the kind of centrists to reestablish its kind of leading edge of its project. Now, this may really strike people when they hear it as too Pollyannish about the threat from the far right, but I don't mean it that way at all because we know the kind of belligerence that they are capable of require, really, 
but also capable of mobilizing can be catastrophic. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see where it goes. I hope that was clear. It was clear. It was very clear. I mean, you know, all I'd say really about it is that Bannon didn't just say they were going to be involved. He said that their involvement was the key to a second Trump victory. So so we'll see. We'll see. We haven't got, I mean, assuming you have an election, we haven't got very long to wait to see if that's going to happen. Well, it's actually puzzled me that Trump hasn't tried to appeal more to a kind of a right-wing version of racial inclusion, Mm, Yeah, because it could work for him. I mean, the masculinist themes, again, this sort of aggression, the kind of military aggression, the idea that our competitors or foreigners are kind of alien rather than national, these are all available. And, you know, he has tried a little bit on the criminal justice reform side. But I think his instincts just run so against that. You know, he just can't quite bring me. I mean, he's he's a racist guy from Queens. I mean, he spent his whole life hating black people. You know, he can't quite do it. Yeah. Well, we've run out of time, Nikhil. I'm sorry I didn't get to ask you about the prison program, but I will do that in the future. Okay. And I would like okay. to just express my absolute heartfelt thanks to you because it's very, very interesting. and I find it very educative. Actually, I feel a bit more hopeful now at the end of this conversation than I did at the beginning. I hope others feel similar. So thank you very, very much for making the time for the conversation. I'm really grateful, and I look forward to continuing it now. Let's not leave it so long in the future. Absolutely, absolutely. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Women's Centre, find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialization or follow us on twitter at uco underscore sprc this podcast was produced by me kaisa kahu and executive produced by professor paul gilroy